today we're in 1 Corinthians 1, 27 through 29. What amazes me continually is how Sunday school discussions end up being what I was going to preach on, whether planned that way or not. So hopefully we'll get more uh, clarity about what the Lord says as we continue to, to look through the Bible. Let me read the text while we're on this slide. 1 Corinthians 1, 27 through 29, and then we'll break that down a little bit. I'll read from the ESV. But God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in the world, even things that are not, to bring to nothing things that are, so that no human being might boast in the presence of God. That's key. No human being may boast in the presence of God. Let's pray. Thank you, Lord, for your goodness and your mercy and your kindness. And we pray that you give us wisdom and a hunger for the truth, that you may feed us pure spiritual food from your word that we might grow. In Jesus' name we ask, amen. Now, as, as we begin, I want to look at verse 27 and break down a few of the ideas in there. And this, by the way, is in keeping with what I was preaching a few weeks ago when we were on this topic and on verses prior to this. But God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. Now, as it says on the slide, the same word, chose, is used three times in verses 27 through 28. And one of the things that I remark here on the slide, key repeated words show God's purpose to shame the world's false system of honor. God has chosen to shame the world's false system of honor. It's very important to keep in mind. The world in which the apostles preached, the first century Middle East, was an honor-shame system. Honor was to be valued more than all else in their way of thinking, and to be shamed is something that they wanted to avoid at all costs. And over the years, there's so much, and I, I'm uh, grateful for people like Kenneth Bailey and some of those scholars who really laid this out there. Some of the things in the Bible, in Luke, Acts, and here in Corinthians, really come alive when you understand the honor-shame society. So you don't want to be shamed. But the honor of knowing God even though that means the world will definitely hate you and they'll see your faith in Christ as a shameful thing and a horrible thing, it's worth believing in Christ, trusting him who bore the shame, who suffered the ultimate shame of being crucified like a common criminal. Uh, Abuse was hurled at him. Everyone shamed him, the Romans, the Jews, and everyone. But he did so, so that those who believe in him, the resurrected Christ, who bodily ascended to heaven, would find eternal honor that will go on forever. And furthermore, and this will introduce where we're going to go with this sermon If it becomes honorable to be well-known in Christendom, in a general sense, I'd be very careful about that. Because most of the time, you can't do that and be true to the Scriptures. Because what Christendom has become is a big, great big uh, part of the world and people are actually saved out of it. And that's, as was mentioned earlier, what I hope to write about. Let me cite some scholars, including Dr. Gordon Fee. I 
want to thank him. I assume he's still on the scene of history. His commentary on 1 Corinthians really helped me in nineteen late 1980s. Let me quote him. The Corinthians, he says, did not stumble onto a great thing in hearing the good news as it was preached by Paul. Rather, God chose the likes of them, says he, so that in order to shame the world and to finally bring it to nothing. In the final analysis, he continues, therefore, this sentence, verses 26 through 29, is, so, is not so much a demeaning of the Corinthians as it is an exaltation of the marvelous grace of God, unquote. What we're going to learn in 1 Corinthians is that what some of the people who are very misled were duped into doing was creating their own honor-shame system within the church, and falsely so. The, the spiritual ones, the pneumatikoi, that would be claiming I'm more spiritual than the other Christians. I'm the great one. I'm of this one. I'm of that one. And when we create a status system in Christendom or Christianity as it's widely known so that you have these hierarchies of honor, we're missing the whole point of the gospel. Jesus Christ did not suffer shame so that people in his name could create their own system and have everything you can imagine that the world would think is honorable. Cathedrals, gold, silver, bishops, archbishops, um, all the things that happened in church history that were honoring to men. No, God chose us not because we had something to offer him, but in order to bring honor and glory to his name and his grace by choosing a people. Shame, the word shame is used twice and uh, with a prefix, kata, that intensifies it. So it's very, very strong. Intensified shame. God is committed to shame the world the wise, the religious, the great ones, the wise ones, and do so by the means of a crucified Jewish Messiah, Jesus Christ. And if we go about looking for honor, we're looking for the wrong thing. What we need is forgiveness of sins. We need redemption, atonement, eternal life. The world definitely hates those who trust in Christ. And let me make a point here that I wrote in my notes. If we crave the honor and status of the world and thereby avoid the offense of the crucified Jewish Messiah, we will be shamed in the day of judgment. If we believe in Christ, the chosen and precious cornerstone, the world will shame us, but we will never be put to shame in eternity. That's why we must believe the promises of God. If we turn the church and and our teachings into something where, wow, look at you, you go to, this is really great, look at how great the church is. You're having your best life now then we missed the point. We're believing things that are promised in the Bible. And if they're not true, Paul says later, we're of all people most to be pitied. I believe the promises of God are true. Why? Because they've been verified by Jesus Christ, who was sent by the Father, the eternal creator, second person of the Trinity, who predicted his own death, burial, and resurrection. He was raised. He did appear to witnesses. He did make promises. He did ascend into heaven, and he said he's coming again. Judgment is certain. Let me cite, if you want to jot this down, Jeremiah 9, 
in verse 8. The wise men are put to shame. They are dismayed and caught. Behold, they have rejected the word of the Lord. What kind of wisdom do they have? You were in Sunday school. What kind of wisdom do you have if you reject God and his word who created the whole world? What's the implied answer? None. Good answer. Now let's have a summary here. I used this one before, but I want us to go to the next slide and we'll see this reversal while you're writing that down. I showed you this before. Not many wise, verse 26. Remember I said the hoi polloi, the many, the ooploi, not very many. Not many wise, not many powerful, not many of noble birth. But God chose the foolish, the weak. God chose the ignoble. Now, let me again clarify as I did last time. It's very clear in the Bible that there were people that had status like Saul of Tarsus in Judaism and various people in the Greek world who had businesses, homes, and opportunities to facilitate the gospel. So it isn't excluding anybody because they have money or including anybody because they don't, but God is bringing forth his purpose so that he will be glorified. And if we devise a system of religion and call it Christianity that we think will be grandiose and glorious in the eyes of the world, or we're going to defeat the world without Christ having returned, post-millennialism, we don't get this. We don't understand it. God is, has made promises. We need to believe them. And we need to understand them from the Bible. Now let's go to verse 28, where it, I have the title here, 1 Corinthians one twenty-eight. God nullifies the world's values. 1 Corinthians one i I'm using the ESV. By the way, the reason for choosing whatever English version I use is based on a lot of prior work from the Greek, and there are certain key words that I think some bring out better in a, in a particular verse. That's the case here. God chose what is low and despised, in the world. Now, what is, what is this world? Cosmos. It means the world in rebellion against God. Even things that are not to bring to nothing things that are. Now, let's consider a point. We had a very, I thought, robust and interesting discussion in Sunday school. And I thank everyone who participated and Eric for teaching. But let's look at this. If you want to turn there, I'll give you a little time. Psalm 135, 4 through 6. While you're looking, we're particularly interested in verse 6. And then I'll read it now here. For the Lord has chosen Jacob for himself, Israel for his own possession. For I know that the Lord is great, and that our Lord is above all gods. Verse 6, look at this. Whatever the Lord, here Yahweh, whatever Yahweh pleases, he does. In heaven and in earth and in the seas and in all the deeps. Psalm 135.6 NASB. So the sovereignty of God, the benevolence of his purpose to bring a plan of salvation through a crucified Jewish Messiah, our Lord Jesus Christ, is God's plan. It's an eternal plan, and he brings it to pass because whatever the Lord pleases, he does. Through the history I've had of studying theology of most of my adult life, that's the one thing that what shocks me is that evangelicals 
and I, myself included at one point, have a hard time with this. But we need to remember that if we can understand, God will help us. We have a love for the truth. He'll help us understand, and it's a good thing to always know what God said. Whatever the Lord pleases, he does. There, there's a sequence in the Greek. Let me point that out. God chose three times, using the same word, to shame two times. The third time, Paul switches words, and it's this word here I mentioned, katargeo, bring to nothing. Now, that word could be nullify, abolish, destroy, however you want to pronounce it. In the Greek, it sounds the same. Kataiskune, kataiskune, katar, excuse me, kat, gay, I got it wrong. Kat, katargese, there it is, abolish, katargese. And what that sound is, it gets the attention of the original readers. God is bringing to nothing. Shame, 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 nothing. Shame, 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 nothing. It's powerful in the Greek. Now, think about that. What has Christendom wanted for many, many centuries? Well, we don't want to be nothing. We want to have cathedrals that impress the world. We want to have power that everybody envies. We want to rule over nations now without Christ present. We want to Christianize this and to Christianize that. Because we don't want to be nothing. We want to be something. And that's why I have such a heavy burden to study this and understand it. I don't believe that's right. I reject post-millennialism, which means that the church is going to prevail in history. And after our prevailing, supposedly, then Christ can come back. That is serious error. It it discounts the doctrine of sin. Even redeemed, we're not perfected. Do you think we can create a uh, Christianized culture, rule over it, and it's going to be a good thing, and we say, okay, we got it now, Jesus, you can come. Do you know a lot of people believe that? Do you know that is the prevailing view of evangelicalism historically in America, especially in the 19th century. I'll try to prove that here today as we go along. Shame, 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 boast, same word. Not the same word, but the same sound. The word for boast also starts with a similar sound, so it's, there's assonance. They, believe, they begin with this letter, kappa. Shame, shame, boast, powerful uh, play on words. Let me cite 1 Corinthians 2, 6. So in that context of honor, shame, society, rejecting boasting, boasting in self, but we do boast in what God's grace has done, what do we know? 1 Corinthians 2, 6. Paul says, yet we speak wisdom among those who are mature, a wisdom, however, not of this age, nor the rulers of this age who are passing away. Another key point. Passing away there is the same Greek word. This age is going to be destroyed, and it's already in the process. The rulers of this age are passing away. They're being brought to nothing. The mature, I believe, are not just better Christians, there are people who have trusted the gospel and know that their hope is in God, not in man, not in religion, not in money, not in society, not in anything that we would trust in. And really, uh, we need to be careful to start thinking what it would be worth. Well, if I could just have a happy life and let's say I make it to uh, 110, and didn't get sick, and then I died. That's not bad. Well, that may sound good to the world, but we're talking about eternity. There is a real judgment. 
So let's go on here to verse 29, and I'll cite a few things that I think should shock us about what American Christianity has believed over the years. 1 Corinthians 129. 1 Corinthians 129. So that, by the way, the Greek is amazing here. Hina, 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 hapas. Hapas is, is stronger. So he's doing these things to shame. And then the, the final one is a little different word, hapos. And it's the fourth purpose clause, and it's the ultimate purpose. So that, here's the ultimate purpose. No flesh, ultimately no flesh, meaning people here, thus human being, might boast in the presence of God. Now, because the actual presence of God lies in the future, the Holy Spirit has been poured out on the day of Pentecost. People are born of God, and they know God, and they're changed if they turn to Christ and believe in him. But that's not the same as being in the presence of God. And there are so many false teachers that are saying, oh, the presence of God showed up. One group got caught blowing gold dust out of their vents, and they say, we had a manifest presence. They got caught and debunked. No, the actual presence of God didn't show up. How do I know that? Besides whether the glitter came from the Dollar Tree. Um, Here's the other way I know that. They didn't die. They were dishonoring the name of God by um, comparing his presence to a trick from a ventilation system with spotlights going through it. Oh, great, wonderful. No, have you read the Bible? What happens when God does show up? Even Moses, what did Moses need so they wouldn't die? He had to be hid in the cleft of the rock. What did Israel need to get out of Egypt and not drown in the Red Sea like the Egyptians? The blood of the lamb on the doorpost. When I see the blood, I'll pass over you. So we got to be careful what we ask for. And I believe with all my heart that what we need to ask for is boldness to preach the gospel, a rejection of the fear of man, a clarity with what God has said and what the terms are by which we come to God, And a belief that God, who cannot lie, will keep his promises. He'll keep us into that day, and he'll bring us safely home to glory as we trust in him. So the word human being here, all flesh, literally, or no flesh may boast. And I'm going to cite, we probably don't have time to turn to it, Romans 3.20. Romans 3.20, just the first part. Romans 3.24, by works of the law, no human being will be justified in his sight. You know what that phrase, in his sight, means? It's the same word used here about the presence of God. Do you really think that if God showed up in all of his power and glory, we'd go, wow, look at the meeting we're having. Or would we be so full of fear and shame we'd shrink and run away if we could even do so? This morning we talked about visitation. It's a theme in the Bible. When God does show up in a visible manifestation, some are saved and many are judged. We see that. Eric talked about it. Now let's also, I'm going to cite this if you can jot it down. 2 Corinthians 4, 2. And Paul is also speaking about his uh, beliefs and preaching and values as God's apostle. 2 Corinthians 4, 2. But we have renounced disgraceful, underhanded ways. We refuse to practice cunning or to tamper with God's word. 
But by the open statement of the truth, we would commend ourselves to everyone's conscience in the sight of God. There's that word. In his presence. And opion in the Greek. Wow. Next week I'll preach some more where the Old Testament is cited. Let him who boasts, boasts in the Lord. We're not boasting that we had something to offer God, but that our God is a mighty God. He's the creator. He's the ruler. He's the savior. He's the judge. He's the beginning and the end. He's the only one who can save. We're not boasting in what we get done because it's a miracle that God can use any of us. So because of that, Paul said, again, the Greek words are very interesting. Cunning could be uh, translated trickery, 2 Corinthians 4, 2. Tamper, that word means to mix human traditions with the pure word of the gospel, according to the complete word study dictionary of the New Testament. Is it going to help anybody if I think, well, my traditions are so important, I got to have them. If you're going to be a Christian, you have to sign on the dotted line that you're going to follow my traditions. Can the traditions of men save anybody, sanctify anybody, cause anybody to grow, give anybody hope, put in front of people the very promises of God who cannot lie? No. Cunning won't do it. Tampering with God's word won't do it. And if we can study and understand and know what God said, and God cannot lie, then we know that everyone born of God was born of the Spirit, and the Holy Spirit who inspired the Word of God will cause those who are born of God to grow. So search the Scriptures. Be Bereans. What did he say? Even for conservatives who believe the Bible is literal, it's very hard for any of us to think that maybe some of my traditions were wrong. I sure had a lot of wrong ones. Had to be corrected. Now let's go to some implications and applications. I forgot to start the timer. I promise you that's not an excuse to go long. Uh, that's not why I didn't start it. You know, I'm so thankful that people come and are hungry to learn the truth. God bless you. God's revealed purpose is to choose, choose a people and destroy human boasting. How do we know the purposes of God? Only they're revealed. What's he revealed? He chose the things that are not to shame the things that are. That's not worse. It's not worse. It's grace. The early church many times got this wrong in church history. Because they'd read the parables and say, well, who's the rich man being saved? Well, it doesn't sound very good. So people would willingly take an oath of poverty and get rid of all the riches, thinking by making itself poor, now God has to save me. No, that's works. It's always, we always go back to works. Salvation by grace through faith. We'll see that. Our second point. Salvation by grace through faith excludes works and excludes boasting. Quickly. Deuteronomy 7, 7, and 8, 8. Eric did a wonderful job. We didn't hear his sermon last week. I was, uh, I couldn't write quick enough, but, or quickly enough to be accurate. But can you imagine taking a genealogy and making it great? If you, if you weren't here, you have to hear the sermon on the genealogy. I couldn't believe Eric took the genealogy and made me want to hear every word of it. And because God's word is interesting in its own right. So this is really part of the point of that last sermon. The, the Lord, Yahweh, was told to Israel in Moses' sermon in Deuteronomy, did not set his love on you, nor choose you, because you were more in number than any of the peoples. Do you think, God needed us, or do you think we need God? I hope you answer the latter. The point of Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, the promises, the 
the Egyptian captivity, Moses, the miraculous birth, the salvation of uh, Moses who was put in that ark and found by Pharaoh's daughter, all these things. The point is that God uses the things that are not to confound the things that are. Abram, of Ur of the Chaldees. Wow, he had a lot to offer God, so I think that's who it's going to be. That's not the point. You were fewest. You didn't have anything going for you. Neither did I. But you were the fewest of all peoples. But because God loved you and kept the oath which he swore to your forefathers. If you don't get anything else, please understand the promises of God. Believe the promises of God and know that God does keep his promises which includes both ultimately there will be a judgment and also salvation for those who come to Christ. He kept the promise he made to Abram. Let me quickly cite this. If you can jot that down the passages, I'm going to cite Genesis 12, 1 through 3. Genesis 12, 1 through 3. And this is talking about Yahweh who appeared to Abram, and here's what he said. Now the Lord, Yahweh, said to Abram, quote, Go forth from your country, from your relatives, from your father's house, to the land which I will show you. And I will make you a great nation, and I will bless you, and I will make your name great, so that you will be a blessing. And I will bless those who bless you, The one who curses you, I will curse. And in you, all of the families of the earth will be blessed. God chose Abram and asked him to leave. You don't just go running away from the safety of your hometown. Unless God called. And thus Abraham, as Eric showed last week, is the mentioned first in Matthew's commentary, not to prove that Abraham had something to offer God, because I thought that was really great to see. God used a lot of people in that genealogy that were considered shameful. Abraham's status, Abraham's status was determined by God's promise and God's action in history. Ephesians 2, 8 and 9. Now let's go to salvation. There's a review I preached through Ephesians the last few years. Ephesians 2, 8 and 9. Let's see what we can learn. For you are saved by grace through faith. And this, not from yourselves, it is God's gift. Not from works, so that no one can boast. There's our word again. Boast. The same thing Paul's talking about in 1 Corinthians. Same word. Are we going to boast? Or are we going to fall on our knees and say, Thank you, Lord, you saved an unworthy sinner. Thank you. Do we really have something to boast about? If it's all of God, it's all his mercy, his grace, what's there to boast about? What were we saved from? Think about it. If you know Christ and you're trusting him, what were you saved from? An unhappy life? A lack of purpose? A lack of ability to make everybody else jump through your hoop? Or were you, I know what I was, a dead sinner who hated God. The Bible says we all were. Let me cite Ephesians 2, 1 through 3. And you were dead in your trespasses and sins, in which you formerly walked according to the course of this world, according to the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now working in the sons of disobedience. Who's that? Everyone lost. It's a Hebraic expression. Sons of means characterized by. The sons of disobedience means Everybody that doesn't know God, we're just dead sinners, alienated from God, going our own way. 
Here's proof of that. Among them, we too all. We can't say, well, the bad people live that way, but not me. No, all. All formerly lived in the lusts of our flesh, indulging the desires of the flesh and of the mind, and were by nature children of wrath. Sons of disobedience, children of wrath. What does that mean? Characterized by not listening to God, going our own way, doing our own thing, ignoring the truth, and facing the wrath of God against sin. Even as the rest. Jew, Gentile, everyone. Then he said in verse 5, by grace you are saved. Salvation by grace is not God doing his part, but not quite getting it done. So we add our part, and it works. I have to cite something for to you here. Let's keep moving forward and revisit 8B and drill down a little on this. I, I couldn't believe some of the things that I've talked to different people about before Sunday school and during, and I really believe it's God's providence that I cite Finney, if you can believe that. I'll show you what he said. Ephesians 2, 8B, for the Lexham English Bible, and this, the word this there refers to salvation, not just grace, not just faith, that salvation itself, the whole thing, whole event, grace and faith, is the gift of God. Of God is the source of it. As I state on the slide, this gift is not earned, deserved, or grounded in anything previously operative in dead sinners. What did you bring to the table? Where, well, I was born in Iowa. Don't believe what they said in the movie. Iowa's not heaven. But it's very nice. Uh, we just, there was a recent game down there and it brought that back to our mind. But that isn't going to do you any good. Or being from Minnesota or from Europe or from Asia or from Australia, it doesn't matter where you're from. What did we bring? Well, sadly, one of our supposed great evangelists, Finney, said we had plenty to offer. We just had to awaken it. Let me cite this. If it doesn't shock you, it should. So I brought along some stuff from Finney that I printed right directly from his lectures on revival. So I'll I'll quote this to you. Charles Finney credited as the key person in the so-called Second Great Awakening. Here's what Charles Finney said, 19th century. Here it is, quote, There must be excitement sufficient to wake up the dormant moral powers and roll back the tide of degradation and sin. Now, I'll, I'll show you. That's not taking out of context. That's what he believed. Now, here's, here's two ways to look at it. Not dead sinners, not lacking a, just the right uh, step up so we can do better. Dead, nothing to offer God. Then he says, no, the dormant moral powers are there. We just got to get enough excitement to get it going, to get it operating. Pull yourself up by your own bootstraps. You need help. And Finney may have been one of the most heretical people in American history to be credited to be an evangelist. I I wrote a paper um, for Dr. Travis's seminary that showed that Finney was a full-blown Pelagian heretic. It was Pelagius. He denied original sin. We're not really fallen. We're not really dead. We just need the right direction. Let me go on. So Finney wrote that, and then he went on and said more. Quote, a revival is not a miracle, according to another definition of the term miracle, something above the powers of nature. Quoting Finney, 
There's nothing in religion beyond the ordinary powers of nature. It consists entirely in the right exercise of the powers of nature. It is just that and nothing else, unquote. And I've got the whole 488 pages downloaded because I bought it one time, the previous software version, and I wrote a paper about it and submitted it for review by church historian uh, like uh, Dr. Travis. I was shocked. Honestly, what set me on the course of wanting to write another book, and I'm not claiming I'll get it done, it's only by God's grace. We can't say, well, I'm going to go here and there and start a business and do some great thing. We should say, if the Lord wills. But I feel heavily burdened to do so. Finney said, the millennium would already be in America if we just were harder. What? If I work harder, the reign of Christ will come to America without Christ, and then the rest of the world will become Christian too? Is that the promise of God? Is America Israel? Does America have particular promises that no other country has? That's what he thought. And I have here some few more quotes. I got time for a few. I mentioned that one. Not a miracle. Let me read one more just to show us not out of context. Continuing, Finney lectures on revival, number one. Revival is not a miracle. Three is his point here. A revival is not a miracle, not dependent on a miracle in any sense, says Finney. It is purely a purely philosophical result of the right use of constituted means. So much so that any other effect produced by the application of means. Not grace, not faith, not uh, what the, says Ephesians 2.8. You can produce mashed potatoes if you know what a potato is, and you know what will mash them, and you'll know you're going to get this outcome. Finney says the work of God that'll change everything is just figuring out how to do it. It's a how-to. And that... Uh, I believe blasphemous idea has filtered throughout our churches in America and I think the world. When I went out to see the purpose-driven thing in 2008, I believe, they were going to have a three-legged stool and uh, starting with America, we're going to go out in all the nations. This is going to be a Christian nation. This is going to be a Christian nation. This problem is going to go away. That problem is going away. The place is full of all these people. From all over. Yes, we're going to do it. Yes, we're going to do it. A couple of us said to Rick Ward, he wanted some critics here, so two showed. I'm not saying anybody else should have, but I did. And my Lutheran friend, we, and he said to, the, to Pastor Warren, what do you have about forgiveness of sins? I think we have, do we have something about forgiveness of sins? And I, and I preached the gospel. Preach Christ. Okay? Preach Christ. And I preach the gospel. But that's not what happened. I hope by now that he's found it. So he says, Finney says, revival is the result of the right use of appropriate means. Think with me. When has sin, corruption, evil, wickedness, perversion, and every form of sin that's listed in Romans 1 gone away because some person engineered a revival by using the right means. After I studied Finney, you read about New England where he was focusing. They later called it the burned-out zone because nobody would go to church because they gave up on it. You know what will keep you and sanctify you and help you grow and give you a love for Christ so you long for his return? It's the work of God through his means, by his grace, not engineering something. By grace alone, faith alone, through Christ alone, is taught in scripture alone, to the glory of God alone. That's what God does. Well, well enough of fitting distasteful so 
The event of salvation is the gift of God. Now, let's drill down just a little more. I found this slide from a previous sermon, and then I want to tell a story that a couple of people said, go ahead and share it. It happened just this week, and I couldn't believe God's timing on that one. But let's look at this slide here, and this is uh, translating to Greek. Uk ek humon, not from you. Uk ek ergon, not from works. That's unpacking what God said through Paul. This foundational truth stands in opposition to all world religions. All of them. All of them. So here's the story. Twice a year, I get a four or five hour infusion because of a disease I was diagnosed with in 2012, I think it was, 2011, was that it, 2012? And they told Diane, how old, you, well, how old was I, 61? I was two months or 62, they told her I'll be dead by the time I'm 62. Didn't work, did it? but by God's grace, not me. And the disease that they um, diagnosed me with, very, very serious, and it's fatal. But So I get these infusions. So I was there Monday. That's the story. So I'm sitting there Monday, and now with everything going on, the mask, and some curtains, they have a whole line of people getting these infusions. And so I'm reading a book about worldviews. I don't think that set off anybody's shoes. But someone came in, older to me, sat down, and the nurses that do the infusions go back and forth. And he said, do you have one of those things on that shows how far you go? She said, yeah. Well, how far would, would that be in a day? Oh, three or four miles, just within the office and wherever. And he said, it just blew me away, the timing. He said, and I was, of course, you couldn't, I couldn't help but hear it. He says, well, don't let anybody tell you about grace. What? I had a sermon already to preach on grace. He said, no, no, don't let anybody tell you about grace. Not reacting to anything. He just said it. And he said, it's works. Keep walking. Keep putting on the miles. That's how you get to heaven. I, one thing I know, God is in charge of timing. Because here I had this sermon I'm working on. He didn't know that. The nurse didn't know that, but I did. But see, that's the default position. This is what the world believes. Karma, reincarnation, work harder, give away your money, accumulate money, try harder, do more, try, 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 more, 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 do, 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 and then... Heaven is a cornfield in Iowa. Well, they were claiming that. I, I know they didn't say that literally. The fact is, we, I love cornfields in Iowa, by the way. I grew up in them. But the point is, is salvation by grace. One more slide. Galatians 6.14. But may it never be, Paul said, that I would boast, there's our word, except in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ. If you don't, let me stop there. If you don't understand the significance of the cross at that time, it won't make sense. No one, we saw that earlier, the Jews wouldn't boast in the cross because it was shameful, it was cursed. Cursed is he who hangs on a tree. The Romans, they couldn't think of a better way to humiliate the Jews who hated to be humiliated, so they hung them on a cross to die. They'd, it was horrible. But Paul boasted in it. Why? Through which the world has been crucified to me and I to the world. You can't go back. Some people are getting baptized today. What does that mean? Paul uses, in 1 Corinthians 10, the analogy of the Israelites coming out of uh, Egypt and going through the sea. The sea closes. And baptism shows I'm believing in Christ and trusting in him. There's no way back. You're not going to take your, your uh, 
material goods and head back to the Red Sea once it's closed. I'm not saying baptism itself does it, but it's an analogy of faith toward God. Boasting before the Lord is abhorrent because it will surely lead to judgment. Someone said, but what the world regards is too shameful to whisper, this is Dr. George, in polite company, a detestable object used for brutal execution of the dregs of society, Paul declared to be the proper, proper basis for exaltation. No, this is not a multi-million dollar gold cross hanging on a building. It's not jewelry. It's not Christendom. It's not boasting that we got a bigger religion than you have. It's a shameful executioner's device, but Jesus Christ died for sins once for all, the just for the unjust, in order to bring us to God. Today, are you trusting Christ, what he did? Uh, Have you received the gift of salvation by faith through grace? Religion is worthless. There are no dormant moral powers. Who would believe that? Well, most of America did. Dormant moral powers? No, we need Christ. Law works leads to boasting, lead to boasting because, this is my statement, they imply comparing ourselves to others and finding others who do not measure up to our own self-made standards to be deficient. I'm better than you, so God's going to have to reward me. I walked more miles. Does it work that way? No. Today, if you have not, trust in the Lord Jesus Christ, believe in him, call on him, and God will give you eternal life. Those who repent and turn to Christ and believe on the Lord Jesus Christ, who shed his blood once for all, those are the ones who will be accounted those who've received the gift of salvation, solely of God, solely of grace, the gift of God. Repent and believe the gospel. Let's pray. Thank you, dear Lord, for your goodness, your kindness, your mercy, and your grace. And as some are expressing their faith in your finished work this afternoon through baptism, may you also continue to assure everyone trusting in you and witnessing that, and those in particular are being baptized, that this is your doing, your promise, and your grace. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.